0: Hello, and welcome to day three of the Wigtown Book Festival. I'm Peggy Hughes, and it's lovely to be with you. Imagine this, a forest has been planted in Norway. The paper from the trees from that forest will be used to print a special anthology of books in 100 years time. Between now and then, one writer every year will contribute a text with the writings held in trust, unread and unpublished until the year 2114. The manuscripts will be presented in a specially designed room in the New Public Library in Oslo and writers to date include Margaret Atwood, David Mitchell and Elif Shafak. This mind-blowing library was conceived by Katie Patterson, an artist whose work charts the cosmos and spans deep time. I've followed this project with huge interest since 2014 so it was really thrilling to have the opportunity to talk with Katie about Future Library and some other things too. I have so many questions about Future Library because I've followed it since the news broke in 2014 about this project. So I wonder if you could just kick us off, please, and give us just the overview of the project for those that may not be familiar yet with Future Library.
1: So Future Library began in 2014. And I planted a forest around a thousand uh, Norwegian spruce trees, and they're just on the outskirts of Oslo. And when these trees are going to be fully grown in a hundred years in total, they're going to be cut down and pulped and made into a book or an anthology of books that will never be read until all this time has passed. So we commission a new author, one author a year, and will do uh, for the next 96 years, I think 94 years we're at already. (laughs) And they write a a brand new piece of writing of any length and they contribute it to this growing forest of books effectively. So that's the kind of overview of the project and there's lots of other aspects that, that knit in.
0: I sense that as with much of your work that it didn't really begin in 2014. I wonder if you could tell us when did you start thinking about a project? Because the scale and the f- number of people involved, not to suggest the logistics, which I would like to ask you about, but it's huge. Could you could you say a bit about where it started for you?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, you're totally right. It, it didn't start in 2014. It, the, the seeds were planted in 2014, but it started much earlier. It started a good few years earlier. I can remember quite clearly when I had the idea. Oddly, I can't always, you know, with artworks, but I do remember being on a train going to Whitstable. Um, I was working on a project for the Whitstable by Alley at the time. I remember doodling and drawing tree rings, and it really was a simple. As kind of seeing very quickly these tree rings visualized as chapters and a book. And I just saw the very materiality of wood and becoming paper and forests equaling books and libraries and imagined growing a whole forest which would kind of time travel and bring books forward into a century's time. So the idea, you know, seemed quite clear to me at that moment, which must have been like 2010 or maybe it was 11. Um, but it took a few years, of course, to bring it to fruition. And even you know, now, it's, it's always in process, the artwork. It's always changing and growing.
0: And how did it end up that you were involved with Norway? Why Norway?
1: It was extremely lucky, I think. Um, I was invited to take part in an event thinking about slow space and slow artworks, and the commissioning body, uh, Bjurvikling, I still can't say it, were looking to commission artworks, permanent artworks, along the harbour development, but the focus was on slow space and slow time. And it was a really unusual kind of conference. It was brilliant. We were out on islands and allotments and in the forest and, and we we're having many discussions about what the many forms it could take um, when we're thinking of slowness and time. I think it was there that it just it it connected, you know, maybe it was being in the forest. I thought, oh, with that idea uh, from those years ago, maybe it could really happen here because it's, you know, it was one of those sort of ideas that is a bit of a well that one's not going to happen I'll keep it keep it in my pocket just in case but then you know everything kind of fell into place and and so I got commissioned um and we really took it step by step because it's a big, risky, difficult artwork to propose to a city, effectively. Um, so we did it bit by bit. You know, we didn't try and deal with everything in one go, which is still our approach.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Did you ever feel you were having to make the hard sell to people to bring them on board with a project of this nature?
1: Well, you know, what was wonderful is Annie Beate she's the director of it all. She would have been the person that would have had to make a hard sell to. She got it immediately and she loved it and she then had to go and have those difficult conversations with so many people, potentially persuade people to get on board that might just never even think of this as a, an artwork to start with, um, no matter permanent artwork that was meant to be on a harbour and so on. Um, so it really you know, broke with people's expectations. But I've got to say the response has been absolutely wonderful and generally we haven't come against anything to major. I mean, people have been really receptive and, um, you know, everybody from the foresters to the librarians, there's a lot of people involved. And it's been an overwhelmingly positive response and, and the city have kind of you know, taken ownership of it, taken it to their, their hearts, which makes it easier and easier as, as time passes to, to make things happen.
0: Yeah that's really beautiful isn't it? They're so proud of it. Um, speaking of some of the people involved I, w- I wondered if you would talk us through the writers who you've involved in this project from from Margaret Atwood to the present use of Ocean of Wong. Could you just say a little bit more about each of them and, and why you wanted to work with them?
1: Yeah um, so I can't believe we're year, year seven already. <laughs> Um, so our first author is Margaret Atwood. I still, you know, think my goodness, how lucky we are and we were. Um, so she was just always in the forefront of, of my mind, you know, from from the get go of having the idealness to could we ask Margaret Atwood? And you know, remarkably, jump a little while later, she she said yes. And she, you know, she kind of grew up in the forest, apart from anything else. So, so it was a number of strands that came together. She grew up in the forest. Her father was a, an entomologist, so she had you know direct experience with trees. And she was even advising us on the kind of trees to plant, as well. Of course, as as her fiction and the way it jumps forward in time, often and kind of paints pictures of, of future civilizations and speculative fiction. Um. So it's just wonderful that she wrote the first piece. After Margaret Atwood, we asked David Mitchell again. I think every, every time we've had a response from an author and had a yes, you know, I can kind of clearly remember that moment of being like, My God, this is real. And that just kept happening, you know, as the authors kept saying yes every time. It's like, goodness, this is really happening. Um so David Mitchell, you know, again, a kind of time traveling and telescoping through worlds and transporting us into different eras and through so many different characters. Um I just kind of love to imagine what he might have written that might then have come about uh, in in another ninety four years when the books first read. Then we had Sean, the Icelandic author, was just wonderful. So he's a, a poet and a novelist, and has also written songs, operas, and in Icelandic. So that was our first, you know, non English language, and that's really important for the project. And so he, again, we don't don't know at all what he's written, but I love the kind of diversity of, of what he, you know, it might be a poem, it might be an entire opera and so on. His title is wonderful. I'm not going to try to say it, but maybe you can read it later. It's it's really long and it uh, gives the kind of hint of, of what's inside. And then after that, there was Turkish author El Shafak, very political activist, really pushing boundaries, and so she came to the forest a few years ago and just enchanted us all. I think, you know, her fiction is full of magic and mysticism and love and hope. And also she's just a great activist and and woman. So super, super excited to see what, well, not that I'll ever see, but to imagine what what Elif has, has written. Then we had Han Kang, a South Korean author, like that was such a special ceremony. It was really, really unbelievable. Maybe we'll, we'll talk a bit later about these ceremonies. But Han Kang, she brought a white cloth with her to the ceremony in the forest where where you hand over, the author hands over the, their manuscript to us and then it gets taken away, you know, for good. And she dragged a white cloth through the whole forest and then she wrapped her manuscript in it. This is all in silence. And so the, you know, the white cloth got soaked and the, the puddles and the... Twigs and the mud of the wood, and then she she wrapped it up and effectively said goodbye in this really moving ritual. So and this year is Carlo Viknausgaard. So of course, you know, an amazing Norwegian author, first Norwegian voice. You know, he's he's kind of known in many ways for being an author of of writing, you know, about just opening his heart and opening everything and kind of describing in great detail his life and other people's lives. And so I thought it might be quite interesting in, in this case where, you know, nobody's going to read any of it until we're all gone. <laughs> what was he tempted to say? Although, of course, he might have ri- written in a completely different kind of way. So our handover with Karl Levy hasn't mm-hmm. happened yet. It's been postponed with COVID, um, but we're hoping it's going to happen before Christmas. So we don't know his title yet. We don't know anything about what he's written. But you know, it's he's I know he's completed it, so we're just waiting waiting for the call basically to get going and, and do the handover. And then yeah, we just announced Ocean Fool. <laughs> And, yeah, ex- extremely happy. I mean, I find his writing deeply emotional um, deeply connective, just transporting and moving across generations again and very timeless seeming. So, yeah, very excited. He's also the youngest author, uh, first American, born in Vietnam. So we're, yeah, super excited that he will be bringing his manuscript to the forest uh, next spring summer, you know, we hope, of course. And I think particularly, you know, these handover ceremonies that are going to be coming up are going to be really moving. Not that the others haven't been, but there's there's just going to be a you know a new sense about it after so long of not connecting with people and being with people, and and so we'll be gathering again. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited, and hopefully he is too.
0: Oh wow it's such a roster of writers honestly like that is that is a dream a dream lineup of writers. I, I wonder you, you know you mentioned a couple of times in there about that the work hasn't been read is that it hasn't been read by anyone you've nope. not been tempted to have a peek.
1: I mean, it, it truly hasn't been read by anybody you know unless, unless the authors are breaking their promises um, but we you know we, we don't even cast an eye on it <laughs> because, in a way, you know, if I was to not that I could anyway, because it literally gets taken away to the city archive. But if if I was to break that promise and read the words, I'd you know it just sort of destroys the the part of the project which is absolutely that it's not for us. You know, it's it's for an, a generation that's not born or is just being born now. So I'm kind of, of course, I'm tempted in a way. I'd love to know what's inside, but I wouldn't ever. Kind of break, break that rule and and the authors. I think if if they if they have a particular way of writing or style or if they really want an editor or if they wanted a translator and and so on, that that would be kind of different. I think they can break the rules and but so far they they haven't. They really are only seen by the authors um, and then they're locked locked away.
0: Goodness, it, sort of, it just blows my mind, that, that <laughs> element of it. How, how is it for them? Do, do you give them a brief? like, Or do, is it just very a very open-ended invitation?
1: It is an open-ended invitation, but there is a bit of a brief attached to it. Um, and that is usually we approach them so they have a year um, to write the piece. The piece has to be new it can be of any length so it's incredibly open and of course can be about absolutely anything they choose in any language and so on uh, no illustrations, that's one of the rules, it's just the written word and that they come to the forest and that they bring, your, bring their manuscript and, and hand it over as part of a, a ceremony every year so otherwise it isn't, it's completely open to them uh, all we know so far is that, you know, I, I can judge a little bit by the weight of the box that they that brings their their manuscript in but apart from that you know there's there's no clues whatsoever apart from the title which they announce in in the forest when they when they give their manuscript over.
0: Um, You mentioned the City Archive Katie I wonder if you could and that's where the the manuscripts get get lodged and and looked after could you that's in a really beautiful space, though, so could you say a little bit about that as well?
1: Yeah, so um, it's called the Silent Room, um, and actually, it's just opening this year. It's it's finished, but we haven't been able to open it yet. You know, until I can get there. <laughs> At the moment, the manuscripts are being held in Oslo City Archive, and they're taking care of them. But actually, as soon as this new room opens in the new library in Bjørveika, that's the permanent place of the manuscripts to be held. Um, so it's in the, the new library that just opened you know, uh, last month, it's on the top floor, which is where the special collections and very ancient books are held, it's a room that's actually made of the trees that we cut to make space for the new ones, all part of the, the regeneration process of the forest, but we, we kept that wood um, back then when we first planted the forest um, and now it's been transformed into this room. Um, so there's around 40,000 bits of uh, wood that have been cut into little pieces. And there's 100 drawers that will each light up that are made with cast glass. So the author's names are going to be inscribed on in the glass and the year. And their manuscripts will go inside that drawer and light up. But we won't be able to read anything inside. We'll, but we'll get a glimpse of the, the pages and their name. And so the room's built in hundred layers. So it's kind of like entering a tree a little bit. Um, and it's designed with the architects of, of the new library and um, we've been working on it for years so i'm really happy about finally opening it um to the public um, and from now on the authors will you know place their manuscripts in the room and choose their their drawers as well for the future
0: i have to ask you you know as, as you've mentioned the project you know it's for a future it's for the future it's for people the future generations how does it feel um as the artist of that piece that, that you know that you're having to hand over control and completion to, to, to lots of other people I just wonder what that feels like for you
1: yeah it's you know it's a project it's such a big part of my life this project we're I mean, not not that the other projects aren't but obviously because this just continues always and will for my whole life it's it is a different kind of experience and it is one that does remind me of my mortality, you know, more than anything else, because it's dealing in a time frame where clearly I'm, I'm going to be gone and most people I know are gonna be gone. It is confronting, but I think that's quite good. <laughs> I think it's important to, especially right now, to be be thinking beyond us and, and our lifespan and, and to be looking to future generations. But it is unusual in that I know that so much of the project will take place um without me um and that's quite different of course but you know we're we're setting down so many ideas and rules and you know anything that we could think of for that point in time even like the design of the anthology for example and the font and there's so many things little things to consider but that I would I would like to have my my kind of hand in it in a way but otherwise I'm I'm more than happy to just let go of it and it's you know as soon as the authors are involved it's it's absolutely passed over to them in a way and then it's passed passed over to the readers so there's a lot of kind of passing down in this project.
0: It feels like a massive sort of act of hope and generosity in a way you know.
1: Good yeah good it's it's I mean, I do. I think it's a hopeful project. And, and, you know, I remember so clearly Margaret Atwood described it as hopeful and, and bel- that it believes that there will be a reader in 100 years, which, you know, is the thing is in these last, what, we're year seven, you know, the pace of change in terms of the climate crisis that we're in, the questions that I get asked now, they've moved so fast. From being about the book and the material book to, to being about uh, human extinction, you know, and whether there'll even be people to read a book, which is really shocking because 100 years isn't that long. But that's kind of what we face, you know, right now. We, we face those questions because there's a ticking clock right now on, on taking action. And so, you know, I do hope, I hope that it's hopeful. Um, it certainly posits this reader and you know even if it's a, a small gesture to leave behind the book it's it's leaving something that just says we're here you're there and we see you you know
0: i mean i did want to bring up um, the climate emergency and just specifically how that has sharpened your own focus or what impact it's had on your work cuz your work's always been concerned with the cosmos and time and you know or or place in this big big scheme of things but how what's happened recently for you
1: yeah i mean so I guess most works that I've made um deal with nature time space cosmos landscape and so are just linked to the climate they just are to the environment to the living world and always have been but I think what's sharpened my focus uh, like you say is just the 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 speed of of which you know the emergency is is really here it always has been it's just that we're you know tuning into quite how severe. It is, and and how important it is to develop a you know a, a reconnection with, with nature and develop a long long term view. And so, projects like Future Library posit that long term view. They they're connected to nature, of course, in every way. But but all the other projects too, you know, I've I've made a work over ten years ago now that connected with a, a disappearing glacier in Iceland. And at that time, you know the Climate change—it was—it was out there, of course, and it's been talked about for decades. But it was still seen as this sort of remote thing that happened to animals somewhere else, or you know, it—it it wasn't like this human-induced emergency that's going to cause havoc to everybody's lives, not only now but um, deep into the future. And so, yeah, I think these these kind of interrelations between ourselves and, and nature, geology and the wider cosmos, they've always been there in my work, but they're, they just feel more pressing somehow now.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you, well, what libraries mean to you? I go, Let's go there first. Yeah, what do libraries, have they meant to you and do they mean to you?
1: Yeah, well, library, I mean, they're so important. They're kind of the, one of the cornerstones of, of civilization, aren't they? And I, I think... I think libraries kind of fulfil um, basic human needs. Really, they're they're social, inclusive. And they promote freedom and they provide quiet space and open space for many people that don't have access to that. Um, but also, books—you know—they're just they're transporting, and and there can be like a repository of of daydreams, and you, and you can lose yourself in libraries. And I think that's that's always what I've done and what I continue to do. And and more recently, um, science libraries. You know, I kind of love to just browse, browse around in university science libraries. Um, And they can be very inspirational. Um, They also are really practical in that libraries have kind of been my office and my studio for um, a number of years in between places. And I like to uh, go to libraries in in different parts of the world um, if I can. If I'm near a library, I'll always go in because I think it always gives a kind of interesting reflection of, of a place. And now of course future libraries, you know, the core of my life and, and we were making this room in the library. So yeah, I, I also think now it's particularly interesting with Covid um, to think about the role of libraries. And I, I did I found it extraordinary in Norway um librarians dressed in the full hazmat gear were delivering books um to people's houses during lockdown. And I just thought that's yes, of course. You know, it's like absolutely. That's so. What should be happening because books can provide solace, can't they? And and they're you know way out of isolation and and. I just thought, of course, Norway are doing that, and I hope other places in the world have been doing that too. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful to think of it—sort of books arriving with your milk or your, yeah. you know, your veg box or whatever.
1: Exactly, um, and having that mm-hmm. in the same importance because I think they are—you know—they're they're totally necessary in, in times like this, and so I hope the you know, the, the role of the library will be even more secured in a way because of this. Let's hope so.
0: You've just reminded me actually of a quote by an American poet called Molly Peacock, uh, where she says, poetry is not necessary the way bread is necessary, the way cake is necessary. But can you imagine a city without cake?
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, it is, there, it's nourishing, you know, it keeps us alive. Uh, in times where we're, we're trapped inside, They're, they provide portals to to distant places and other people's imaginings of things and so yeah I, I would equate them to as important as cake for sure.
0: I was going to ask you about the artists and the writers who've meant something to you but I, I might want to include scientists in there uh, just because of the nature of your work. So who are the figures I suppose that have meant the most to you?
1: Well they're, they're re- they really are pretty wide ranging and you know change from <laughs> week to week almost um, but in terms of the arts, I just, I always get drawn back to on on camera, Um And especially, I'm actually so lucky because I have it here in, in my house. It's, it's packed away in a box, but it was a gift. And it's on Onkawara's One Million Years. And it's a book, it lists every year a, a million years past and every year a million years into the future. And so that just... I just find it so expansive and you know I just I love that work so so that's he's an artist and, and that's an artwork that just always kind of gives me yeah hope and and expansion and I was thinking about the last artwork that I saw um, before lockdown and although things are opening up now I, I actually have hardly left the village over here and I saw Agnes Martin's Morning in the Tate Modern in one of the last trips that I did, and it's just really stuck with me. I mean, in anyway, I, I I love her. I love her work. I think it was something about the stillness and uh, and the kind of transportation of of that work that's carried through lockdown. And because um you know we're we're all made to stay in one place, it's given me a bit more time and focus to think. You know to think hard really about the experiences and, and what they're worth and the value and and so yeah that that was an experience that's really stayed with me um, but then authors of course are a great inspiration um ocean foam, you know that's here yeah, i've just been reading an earth were briefly gorgeous and and at the moment you know kind of shockingly beautiful and violent and you know, traumatic and just so so many things brought together. Yeah, at the moment I've got his poetry collection, Night Sky with Exit Wound, and I would say, you know, I didn't have a, a great deal of of time over lockdown. I've, I've got a three year old and and so it's, we've still been on the go. But I I did the the book that I read during lockdown, which which just will always stay with me is, is Richard Powers' the Overstory. Yeah, it's, it's trees. It's a life of trees. And it's really magical, but also, you know, dealing with the really pressing and urgent everything that we have to deal with right now. So, yeah, the, the inspirations really do come from everywhere. In, in terms of science, Sir Martin Rees is an amazing astronomer, the Astronomer Royal, and he writes a lot about the future. Our Final Century is one of the books that is depressing of course <laughs> but also urgent unnecessary um, and he, he just really rationally but also quite poetically puts down the different threats that we're facing um, between now and on the next century so, so that's been a, a really important work for me. Wonderful.
0: We're nearly, nearly there, Katie. Just a couple of little final ones, really. I just wonder from this time we're in that we're seeing. I wonder what of it, uh, not not the climate emergency question per se, but just into your, as a practice, or other things that. Of the, it's such a weird moment that we've been in. What do you think will get into the work, or what do you think you'll keep from the days we've been seeing?
1: Yeah. Well, it's. You know, I'm, I'm, I count my blessings in a way. For, for me and my family, nobody's been directly, you know, we haven't suffered greatly from this. And so I'm, I'm deeply aware that so many have. So I don't want it to sound flippant. Um, but, but there are many things that for me have been really positive. I have loved the not traveling everywhere, and you know it's just a little bit of a given these days as an artist. And you know, I do a lot of installing exhibitions everywhere, I do a lot of traveling for meetings and and so on. That that's come to a bit of a halt. Well, not a bit of a halt. It's it's I've never stayed still like this in my whole life. I think um is just yeah, it's been brilliant, and it's just really been lessons on what you need to do to travel and what you you know, where you don't need to travel. And of course that does connect to the, the climate also. But also the, the kind of relationship to nature. You know, my my work it deals with time and nature of course. But in many ways, you know, I, I live the kind of life that I, I don't I don't live my concepts enough. <laughs> you know, I'm always on the move. I'm working on zillions of things at once. I feel like I have deadlines coming out my ears all of the time. But actually in lockdown, it's been a moment to just think, hang on, you know, what's important here? What's necessary? Tune in to my natural surroundings and just be, you know, be here in one place. And so I really have noticed the shifting seasons in a way that I don't think I ever have before. The cycles of the moon, you know, things I'm always interested in, but haven't given it enough time to actually get, you know, really immersed in these things. Uh, And the same walks, you know, going in the same walks every day. Might seem incredibly boring but i've i've found it found it quite rich you know to just notice things again that i 've taken for granted all of these years, so I hope to carry all of that forth, and certainly it really has been eye opening in, in terms of climate change and I love that in many places in China, people are able to see the blue sky again for the first time, and you know nature's starting to recover itself and in certain places so it does seem like a, a really important moment for making the right decisions going forward and you know how, how we kind of re-enter the the world of movement and travel and change again and, and what needs to be radically changed you know before we just try to reverse things back to as they were.
0: Thanks so much to Katie. You can find out much more about Future Library at futurelibrary.no. Katie's work is featured in NOW, an exhibition with other artists at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art in Modern One. And that's on NOW until Sunday the 10th of January 2021, in case you happen to find yourself in Edinburgh in the coming months. From Norwegian forests and texts that we can't read to Galloway and sounds that haven't yet been heard. This year at Wigtown, we have a sound artist in residence, Stuart McLean. Stuart is the mastermind behind a project which we thought pairs particularly well with Katie's. The Dark Outside is a site-specific 24-hour radio experience that broadcasts sounds and music that have never been heard before in a place where nobody might hear, in the Galloway Forest. Stuart's running the latest incarnation of it, Da Dark Outside, online right now if you're listening the day this podcast was released. So that's noon today, Saturday the 26th of September, and ends tomorrow, Sunday the 27th, just after midday. So do listen in if you can. We caught up with Stuart to talk about the dark outside and find out more about his plans as or sound artist in residence. So here we are joined by Stuart McLean who as many Wigtown regulars will know is a Wigtown fellow and this year's sound artist. Stuart, thanks very much for joining us. So so I'm going to kick us off right at the sort of beginning of this quite extraordinary project of yours called The Dark Outside or Da Dark Outside. Which is it Stuart? Is it Da or the...
2: Well it's usually The Dark Outside. The The Da Dark Outside was a way to get around Ofcom's licensing <laughs> regulations.
0: A semantic smudge as it were. Tell us a little bit about this project and where it all began.
2: Yeah well it originally started in 2012 the Gallery Forests, Dark Skies Park, it just became a thing officially and there was a biosphere project as well. So they are they had artists in residence which were Robbie Coleman and Joe Hodges. They were doing lots of strange things with sculptures and literally the whole length and breadth of the forest. And they also did little guerrilla FM radio broadcasts. So they asked me to do a piece about the Voyager space probe, which was very similar to what I did in the The jail cell last year, that ballooned from 30 minutes, like a 30 minute piece, uh, to them giving me free reign to do with whatever I liked with a radio transmitter for 24 hours. Me not being the most sensible person in the world decided the best thing to do with a radio transmitter for 24 hours was play lots of things that no one's ever heard before in a place where nobody would hear it. I thought it would be a one-off, but this is the seventh or eighth.
0: What was the appeal for you of playing, well there's the two different things there, stuff nobody had ever heard and playing it to an audience of as i ever read, trees, sheep, deer, beasties. What was the
2: appeal? I think the appeal was just the ridiculousness of it really. So I don't know if you've been to the Galloway Forest. There's a monument to Alexander Murray it's on top of a little hill. It's this big 80 foot slab of granite. It sort of dominates the skyline. Um, so it's broadcast from there so FM works line of sight it's, so it's not the highest object. Well, FM transfers usually on top of hills and things but this one was chosen deliberately to hem in any potential listener to a very small area.
0: Give us a sense of the the sort of aesthetic of this then Stuart. So it's not is is it that you have to have your own little radio or is it kind of like boomed out from a bigger speaker type well, thing? It's
2: into- it sort of moved on from being one radio on top just sitting at the monuments to there being like a tent just in front of it and there's a, a little table. People bring snacks and biscuits, it's a running joke with them, um, share the biscuits. The little table has several radios so you've got all these different radios, big and small and they all sound totally different so it's quite an interesting mix of sounds.
0: So to speak a wee bit more then about the sounds, how did you, for the well for the 2012 one and, and now today, how do you source those sounds? that they're, they're, They've not been heard anywhere else before, is that right?
2: I ask people nicely. <laughs> The first one was done with three weeks' notice. Fortunately, I know quite a lot of people who either know lots of people or most of my friends are music-related. So I just basically just asked them to see what they had. Because any musician will have hours and hours and hours of material that no one has ever heard that they don't want anyone to hear.
0: Yeah, much like writers, I believe, there's a lot tucked away.
2: There's a lot tucked away that no one, they don't want anyone to see or hear. So they, they sent lots of things like that that was played once. I deleted everything afterwards so no one can speak of it ever again.
0: Did I read somewhere that you took a hammer originally to an actual... Oh, that was,
2: yeah, the first hard drive with it. It's before they discovered forensic deletion software. I thought the best thing to do with a, with a hard drive was hit it with a, a mallet. That'll do the job. <laughs> I beat the living daylights out of this. Then we had a bonfire in the garden, so it went on that as well. And to make it worse, it's now Buried in a garden in Wigtown.
0: You've done several of these now, Stuart. I mean, what wh- how has it evolved over, over time as an experience? I, I guess you've got more than six people and a couple of goats.
2: The licence gets paid by Sanctuary Lab, which is like a site-specific series of experimental art things. Um, every time it's different. You've got everything from motion-sensored sounds being played as you walk up a path, which is quite scary at night. There's usually lots of different things going on.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a really incredible sonic mix in this beautiful in- environment. What, what, to your mind, are the kind of sounds that work best in that? I mean, it's a, it's a huge volume, obviously, that you have you have to compile for a 24-hour piece, but what are some standout
2: pieces? Quite a lot, I think. you've got to... I found it best to work it for the time of day because not everything works at three in the afternoon, and likewise, not everything works at two in the morning. It seems to be a magnet for the more experimental musicians. I don't know what it is about trees and forests but they they seem to be drawn to it so I always get quite a lot of them experimental drone pieces, which after midnight sound absolutely amazing. (laughs) So when it's really, really dark I mean the forest gets really dark anyway but you can't see your hand in front of your face dark and it adds to that.
0: It sounds amazing. It's like the the forest is is complementing the music or vice versa.
2: Yeah, we do. um, Robbie Coleman has a an art installation called Enclosure, which is a 100 foot wide neon circle, bright blue, and that's uh, stuck in a field. We actually had Drock, which is Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury, who went on to do things at Devs, Deus Ex, basically Ivor Novello Award winners for soundtracks. They travelled for eight or ten hours just to play live in a field for ten minutes in front of a large neon circle. So it was quite. Quite surreal.
0: What do you think it is about the experience that musicians so makes them want to be involved?
2: Some people call it a festival, but it's not really a festival because there's no pretense, there's no branding. It's its own little thing. It's, it's, been really, it's really hard to sell this, actually, to anyone, <laughs>
0: It's. It just. I. I've not been. It just sounds super magical, and I think what you're saying about it being its own thing. It's. It's maybe something about the ephemeral quality of it that you have to be there right in this present moment to. Yeah, it they?
2: It doesn't last for very long, so you, you'll miss it. <laughs>
0: Tell us, tell sir, us, if you would, just what is happening today and how people who might have heard about this just now, how can they get involved?
2: Well, to get properly involved, wait until the next one sends something in. But we've had some big orchestral pieces, uh, opera, very well-known names, people recording for the first time ever. It's like a shared platform. There's no headliner.
0: But how can listeners can do it?
2: Well, it's be broadcast via live. It'll have been
0: going from noon at this point today and going until noon tomorrow on Sunday. Yep.
2: It's 24 hours and four oh. minutes. I went four minutes over.
0: Will you yourself stay up to marathon to see it through?
2: Well, I tend to stay up for as long as I can, but it's always playing in the background.
0: I wanted to ask you, sir, just finally, about another, well, your role with the festival this year as as sound artist in residence.
2: Um, basically, Adrian at the Book Festival asked me to some ideas about what they can do and when we thought of a sound idea but basically recording Wigtown so it could be anything in the the town itself so having lived there for 14 years you know quite a few spots that this it sounds quite interesting but then I threw all that out the window and I thought well why not have it just a complete hour-long me walking through Wigtown with footsteps, cars passing, people chatting and the noise of the air conditioning and the co-op. Literally everything. So, I mean, you've got random conversations. The council's crack team of st- <laughs> grass strimmers in the hedge cutters came out. Well, they obviously knew I was coming. So there's uh, things the, like the Martyrs' steak walks they have got the footsteps on the gravel and you've got birds galore there's the bagpiper he obviously knew I was coming so he's playing his pipes at the square it's pretty much the Wiggetown experience you'll know the voices there's scads singing away in the community shops and things like that
0: brilliant I'm truly bringing this the sounds of Wigtown to us this year stuart where can people find that is that going to be on the Wigtown?
2: that should be on the, the festival website that is such a nice idea there is another one where if we have us have to chop up little excerpts of sounds and noises for a guess the sound <laughs> like what's that racket there's 14 of them in total uh, okay so, uh, i'm not going to give it away
0: don't no spoilers no spoilers brilliant well, thanks so much to Stuart McLean. We definitely can't wait to play Guess the Sound when it appears on the Wigtown Book Festival website, and we'll certainly be dipping into Da Dark Outside at furtherin.live until noon on Sunday, 27th September. And if you miss that, do follow along with Stuart at Frenchbloke on Twitter and at Dark Outside thanks once again to Katie Patterson of Future Library and of course to Stuart McLean. What a pleasure. We are really happy you could join us for this episode and we are really hoping that you'll join us for the others. We love being with you uh, but for now take good care of yourselves. Bye